Tonight's chapters, Isaiah 7 through 10, have as their backdrop the most underrated story in the Old Testament. You know, Christians can recite the stories of David and Goliath, of Jonah and the whale, of Daniel in the lion's den, Moses at the burning bush, but few have even heard of Isaiah and the angel. And yet here is a story that is so important to God's interests that he chose to record it three times in Scripture. 2 Kings chapter 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and Isaiah chapter 37. This event also is referred to by the prophets. It's also mentioned in the Psalms. Now here's the rundown. It was 701 B.C. The Assyrian army had surrounded Jerusalem. After several successful sieges against the Syrian capital Damascus and the Israeli capital of Samaria, Assyria had set their sights on the Judean capital of Jerusalem. At least 185,000 troops had camped just outside Zion's walls. They were poised to strike. Understand, a 200,000 troop army is about the population of the city of Columbus, Georgia. That's how big, 200,000 people. That's how big a number that is. The Assyrian king hoped that the mere threat of such a vast army just outside of Jerusalem would intimidate the Jews into surrender, that he would conquer without firing a shot. That's not what happened. Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, and King Hezekiah, they hit their knees and they prayed. They prayed for a miracle, a bold miracle. The people of Jerusalem went to bed that night on the brink of annihilation. But on the next morning, they awoke to a pleasant surprise. For that night, an angel of the Lord fought for God's people. One battle-hardened angel. You could say a one-angel wrecking crew. Slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that very night. 2 Kings 19, verse 35, provides the play-by-play. Read it with me. On a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. I would imagine so if they were corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, and he went away. He returned home. In other words, he tucked tail and he remained at Nineveh. George Byron describes the angel's victory with the poet's pen. I like this. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. And his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears were like stars on the sea when the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset was seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn has blown, that host on tomorrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill, and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the soldiers distorted and pale with the dew on their brow and the rust on their mail. 
And their tents were all silent, their banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpets unblown. And the Assyrian widows are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, has melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. It was a mighty victory, an outstanding triumph. But that's just the beginning of the story. Isaiah chapter 7 through 10 fill in some details and provide us some background for this story of Isaiah and the angel. It sets the stage. Verse 1 begins. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the king of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail. Now, Isaiah is taking us back in time. Thirty years prior to what we've just read about, Assyria's invasion of Jerusalem. Verse 1 recalls a couple of earlier bullies. Hezekiah's granddad, Ahaz, had been frightened when the king of Syria and the king of Israel both came against Judah. Now understand, and you've got to get this straight as we start, Syria and Assyria were two different people groups. Assyria lived on the Euphrates River between the Tigris and the Euphrates in the heart of Mesopotamia. Nineveh was its capital. Whereas Syria lived just north of Israel with its capital city, Damascus. Now at the time, Ahaz was afraid of the nearer neighbors, Israel just to his north and Syria north of Israel. He wasn't so much worried about Assyria. In fact, he was courting Assyria. He wanted Assyria to sort of come and protect him. He was hoping that he could secure their protection against these other two nearer neighbors. He goes on, and it was told to the house of David, that is the kings of Judah, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Now, now this was serious. Invading army, the Syrian army, the Syrian troops, they were camping in Ephraim. Ephraim was the tribe just north of Judah. This basically were the northern suburbs of Jerusalem. I mean, this would be like the army coming against Atlanta, you know, and camping up in Roswell, Marietta area. You know, this is serious. This is a major threat. Syrian troops are in Ephraim. Ahaz is scared to death. Ever heard the expression, shaking like a leaf? Well, here's where it originates. The heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. They were shaken like a leaf. Here, King Ahaz is scared to death. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jezub, your son. Now, Isaiah had two sons. And evidently, there is a price to be paid when your father is a prophet. Often you end up with a really weird name. (laughs) Shear Jezub. The names of Isaiah's sons were both prophetic, by the way. The Hebrew phrase, Shear Jezub, means a remnant shall return. 
And the promise of a remnant, a remnant of Jews, was an assurance that Judah would never be ultimately destroyed. Now God tells this father-son team, Ahaz and his son, he tells them where to meet King Ahaz. I'm sorry, Isaiah and his son, where to meet King Ahaz. He tells them. At the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. If you've been to Jerusalem with us, you know that the upper pool was probably the pools of Bethesda. These were the pools just north of the Temple Mount. The location of the fuller's field is more uncertain. Where they were, where the fuller's field was, we're really not sure, so we don't really know which way the highway ran, whether it ran east or whether it ran uh, west from the pools of Bethesda. Just for an FYI, a fuller, by the way, was a professional launderer. He would clean and he would thicken cloth. In other words, make it fuller. That's why they call him a fuller. He would use soap and pounding and he would beat out the stains and he would recondition the fibers. Of course, the process necessitated not just pounding but running water. So the fuller's field was always located near a stream or a spring. Here King Ahaz, he expects a prolonged siege of Jerusalem, and so he goes out to inspect the aqueduct, which is along the highway to the fuller's field. It was the city's water supply, and so he goes out to make sure that things are intact, that they can withstand the siege. Now, Isaiah is to intercept him on his inspection, and God tells Isaiah what to say to the king. Say to him, take heed and be quiet, Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Now, the king of Syria was reason. King of Israel was the son of Remaliah, a man named Pekah. But notice what God calls them. He calls both of these kings two stubs of smoking firebrands, literally a couple of cigarette butts. That's what he calls them. These two kings you're worried about, they're a couple of cigarette butts. Here's the point. These kings and their armies, they're going to blow a lot of smoke, but they're not going to produce much flame. Don't be afraid of them, King Ahaz. Don't be intimidated by them. They're just a couple of cigarette butts. Now remember, at the time, Ahaz is seeking the protection of the Assyrians, further east in Mesopotamia. In fact, he's about to strike an ungodly alliance with these pagans. He's going to do so because he doesn't trust in God. In fact, he's going to go so far as to buy their security with gold from the temple. This was an abomination. Ahaz will even bow to the false gods of Assyria. And this has grieved the heart of God. Ahaz's compromise is unnecessary if he would have believed the Lord had promised to deliver him. Verse 5 continues, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabeel. Tabeel was a Hebrew code name for Remaliah, again, one of the kings coming against Judah. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. 
Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now Ahaz, he isn't to worry about Syria. And he isn't worried to worry about Ephraim, a nickname for Israel. These two kingdoms, they're just cigarette butts. They're just smoking firebrands. In fact, he predicts that in 65 years, there'll be no more. The year now is about 733 B.C. Israel's capital, Samaria, fell to Assyria in 722 B.C. But in the years that followed the Assyrians, they resettled Ephraim with foreigners that they had brought in from other conquered lands. That means that by 668 B.C. or 65 years later, the northern kingdom, for the most part, had lost its Hebrew identity and had become kind of a melting pot of those that had been left behind and those from other lands. And so it really did no longer exist, at least in its previous form. You know, one truth you learn about studying the Bible, by studying the Bible, is that nothing God ever does is incidental. In fact, the location of Isaiah's prophecy was no accident. You remember Ahaz, he had invited the Assyrians to protect him. And yet later, they're going to pose a greater threat than either Syria or Israel. In just three decades... In the reign of Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah, 185,000 Assyrian troops will surround Jerusalem. And their king, the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, will send out an ambassador to rail insults and threats at Judah and pose terms for surrender. And guess where he speaks to Judah? Guess where he utters his threats? 2 Kings 18 verse 17 will tell you, on the highway to the fuller's field at the exact spot where Isaiah promised Hezekiah's father God's protection. And it was a double reminder. If King Ahaz had trusted God instead of the Assyrians, this murderous army might not be outside the wall. And yet now that they are, God's promises still stand in the exact spot where the enemy hurls his threats. God has already promised his people deliverance. Isn't that amazing? Now verse 10 tells us, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Now here's an incredible command. Kind of like make a wish, Ahaz. Ask for a sign. God is going to assure King Ahaz of his deliverance with a sign of the king's own choosing. He's saying, ask the most outlandish thing you can possibly imagine and God will do it to prove to you his deliverance. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now again, we learn from his future actions that this was a false humility. He didn't really trust the Lord. Ahaz had already made up his mind. He, he had more confidence in his political maneuvers. He was planning to strike an alliance with the Assyrians. That's why Isaiah presses him. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, 
Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since Ahaz refuses to name a sign, God will provide a sign himself. And notice Isaiah takes this matter of a sign beyond the current local situation. Obviously, the immediate politics of the day provoked this prophecy. But it's as if God knew that he was wasting this sign on King Ahaz. And so he brought in its implications to the whole house of David. He says, hear now, O house of David. The sign that Isaiah is about to reveal will speak not only to King Ahaz, but it'll be a sign to all the kings of this Davidic dynasty, to all of the tribe of Judah for generations to come. And what sign does God choose to give to King Ahaz? I'm telling you, this sign is more bizarre than anything Ahaz would have ever dreamed up on his own. Isaiah gives him the sign In verse 14, or God gives it to Isaiah, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, you know, the name Emmanuel means God with us. What a sign indeed. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, you remember that after the angel appeared to Joseph to tell him that his betrothed wife, Mary, had conceived a son through the Holy Spirit, Matthew says that this occurred in order to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes our text tonight, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus was born of a virgin. You know, there are two other Old Testament prophecies that predicted the virgin birth. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and then Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 22. Jesus was virgin born. Now be aware, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, the Hebrew word translated virgin is the word Alma. And there will be skeptics that will tell you that Alma doesn't necessarily mean virgin. And they're right. It can mean a young girl of marriageable age. Can be a virgin, but doesn't necessarily have to be a virgin. It is true, though, if you look up the word Alma, it appears seven times in the Old Testament. And in each case, the context of the verse does refer to a girl who's never had sexual relations. And so Alma certainly can mean a virgin. It's interesting, though, that in 270 B.C., the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The translation is called the Septuagint. And it's interesting how the writers of the Septuagint rendered the word Alma. They translated it by the Greek word Parthenos, which is absolutely, unequivocally a reference to a virgin. A woman who's never had sexual relations with a man. And it's interesting, when Matthew quotes this verse in his gospel, guess what word he uses? He uses the word parthenos, which is a virgin. Certainly, Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary had no prior relationships with a man. And and I want you to understand that the virgin birth of Jesus is not 
some peripheral doctrine. No, it is crucial to Christianity. The genetics of salvation require a virgin birth. You see, sin passed down through Adam, through the father's bloodline. If a human father had sired Jesus, he would have been born in sin. He would have inherited Adam's sin. And his death could never have been substitutionary. He would have been dying for his own sin, not ours. For Jesus to die for the sin of the world, for you and for me, it was necessary for him to be born sinless himself. Thus the virgin birth enabled Jesus to be as human as his mother Mary, yet as sinless and as divine as his Father in heaven. Here's the point of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah introduces to us Emmanuel. The sign to Ahaz was Emmanuel. Now he'll be born of a virgin, but that's 700 years future. Isaiah 7 verse 14 lists a detail that identifies his birth. But Jesus, remember, he wasn't born yet. We're talking about Jesus now as being pre-existent prior to his birth. Remember, Jesus was alive before he was born. He's the one person you can say that. You weren't alive before you were born. But Jesus was alive before he was born. He was God. Jesus was alive in Isaiah's day. In fact, more relevant to King Ahaz than his virgin birth was his presence and his mission at the time. You see, Jesus didn't commence being Emmanuel when he was born of a virgin. He was Emmanuel prior to his birth from the beginning. And here Isaiah introduces Emmanuel to the nation Judah. He'll be born of a virgin 700 years in the future. But he's about to play a major role in Judah's current condition. Everybody with me? Maybe? Okay, good. Isaiah talks about Emmanuel in verse 15. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, curds and honey were baby food. That's what it was, baby food. Mushy, easy to digest. Not difficult to chew. Thus, Isaiah is saying that before this miraculous virgin-born child reaches adulthood, the Syrians and the Israelis will no longer be a serious threat. That's what he's saying. Now, it was 730 years before the child of the prophecy was ever born. Yet, if Jesus had been born that very day, the time frame would have still been valid. A Jewish boy celebrates his bar mitzvah or his passage from childhood into adulthood around the age of 12. In a little less than a dozen years, the Assyrians had wiped out both Syria and Israel. Both enemies had been toppled. Assyria will conquer Syria and will conquer Israel, but they'll keep coming southward. We're told the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people, and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Ephraim there being a nickname for all of Israel. He's referencing here the civil war that split the nation into two. 
Remember right after Solomon? Solomon's son Rehoboam taxed the people and the people revolted. He's saying times are going to be worse than they've ever been since we were two countries. He says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come up and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorns and in all the pastures. The armies, the great armies of Egypt, the mighty armies of the Assyrians. Isaiah pictures them as a bee and as a fly and God will whistle for them. And they'll come up against Jerusalem. They'll swarm into the land like flies and like bees. And in that same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, and the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. The shaving of the hair would be a symbol of disgrace, a stripping away of the king's honor. You know, like the American Indians of the Wild West, often an invading army would scalp its conquered foes. It was a symbol of stripping a man from his honor, shaving him to humiliate him. Verse 21, It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds for curds and honey. Everyone will eat who is left in the land. In other words, there'll be no steak because no one is going to kill their cow for the steak. They have to survive, so they'll keep their few head of cattle alive as an ongoing source of milk and cheese. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for briars and for thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. In other words, once populated areas, once cities and communities will be turned to nothing but pasture, animals will graze where kids played and where communities lived. That's what he's saying. Now chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Here is Isaiah's second son. I told you it was tough being a prophet's son. You get some weird names. I think I'd rather be the boy named Sue, quite frankly, than Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Can you imagine the first day of class with this name? First day of school? This too, though, is a prophetic name. It means speed to the plunder, swift to the spoils. The name of his first son spoke of God's deliverance. His second son's name speaks of God's destruction. Jerusalem's enemies will be plundered. Verse 2, And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Evidently, his wife was a prophet. Isaiah was a prophet, and his wife was a prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Salal Hashbaz. For before the child 
will have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. God will judge Syria and Israel by the hand of the king of Assyria. Now the Lord also spoke to me again saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Remaliah's son. In other words, God is upset with the northern tribes for turning their back on Jerusalem. The waters of Shiloh are actually the pool of Siloam. It was the water supply that fed uh, inside the walls of Jerusalem. The Gihon Spring would bubble up and it would feed the pools of Siloam. It was a part of Jerusalem. It was the water supply there in Jerusalem. And he's talking about those who turned their back on Jerusalem. They had turned from Jerusalem. They had embraced the rival king there in Samaria. He says, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. Jerusalem was this gentle spring, whereas the armies of Israel will overflow into the land like a flood. They'll just overwhelm the northern tribes of Israel in the land of Syria. And Now notice verse 8. He, meaning the king of Assyria, will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land. Who? Oh, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now here is where the plot thickens. Remember Isaiah 7, verse 14. Who is this man, Emmanuel? He won't be born for another 700 years. But Emmanuel, the Son of God, already exists. He has existed from eternity past. He will exist till eternity future. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And the land belongs to Him. Notice that. It's your land, O Emmanuel. Before it was the Arabs, before it was the Israelis, it belonged to Jesus. It's his land. Israel was his possession. And this is why these foreigners should beware. The Assyrian troops have poured into Judah like a flood. But the invading army is about to meet its match because they have treaded and trampled upon Emmanuel's land. Notice what he says. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take up your arms. Get your shields. Put on your, your armor, if you dare. But you're about to be broken. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. And why? For Emmanuel. For God is with us. What stops this invading flood? What shatters and breaks into pieces Assyria's invincible army? What was the sign that God gave to Ahaz, the guarantee of Judah's deliverance? It was none other than God with us. Emmanuel. Here's why the story of Isaiah and the angel is one of the most provocative stories in all of the Bible. 
Jesus was the angel of the Lord who killed those 185,000 Assyrians. Emmanuel went on the war path. Jesus was the one who went out to slaughter the invading army and broke them into pieces. Catch this. The first blood Jesus spilt was not his own. The Hebrew word angel simply means messenger. Sometimes it's a human messenger. Sometimes it's an angelic messenger. And there are many Old Testament examples where we can go back and I can show you where the angel of the Lord was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I believe that's what's happened here. Now here's the part of the Christmas story that nobody seems to tell you. Mary's baby was not a newcomer. That little baby had been here before. In fact, that baby had been to battle. The Christmas child was Emmanuel. That's what Matthew refers to him as. That's what the angel called him. God with us. The Christmas child was Emmanuel, the warrior of Isaiah's day, who proved the Hebrew God true and who dispensed with the evil Assyrians. The babe Mary laid in the manger hay had already made hay in the battlefield. Seven centuries earlier, the babe of Bethlehem had come brandishing a sword with fire in his eyes, with justice in his heart. Jesus had flashed his medal, and by the time he had returned it to its scabbard, it was dripping with rebel blood. When Mary's baby cried, it could have been a battle cry. Imagine Judah, imagine Joseph, when he heard those angelic words, when he was told that his baby was going to be Emmanuel. What went through his mind? He knew Isaiah. He knew the prophecies. He, he knew the ancient deliverer. How could Mary's baby be the angel of vengeance who slaughtered the Assyrian? Could it be? My, that prophecy made God's humility, the fact that God became a man, that much more amazing. Yes, God became a man, but even more than that, the warrior, the avenger, became an infant. You know, Jesus became vulnerable. This great warrior who had brandished a sword, laid that sword aside and became as vulnerable as a human being can be. Became an infant, became a baby. Totally dependent upon the care of a teenage woman. Isn't that amazing? Talk about the humility of God. Well, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand. And instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. You know, by the time Ahaz was afraid of these two nations conspiring against him. And God says, Don't be afraid of a conspiracy. 
Don't be afraid, Ahaz, of two people conspiring against you because one plus God equals a majority. Oliver Cromwell was a courageous man, and one day he was asked how he could be so brave. He responded, I have learned that when you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Here God will be Jerusalem's defense. He says, he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Does this verse ring a bell? It's what we've been studying on Sunday morning in 1 Peter 2. Peter takes this very verse and he applies it to Jesus. He says, embrace the cornerstone. Embrace Jesus as your cornerstone. And he'll make us a temple of praise to God, a sanctuary. But reject him. And he'll become to you a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what happened to the Jews. They stumbled over Jesus. He didn't meet up to their expectations. They wanted a political ruler. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. They were offended by Jesus' claims and his intentions. And here Isaiah is telling him, better to embrace Jesus as Lord than to be offended by your own prejudices. Jesus became... Isaiah says, as a trap and as a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. In Matthew 21, verse 44, Jesus referred to himself as a stone. There Jesus said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It's wonderful to come broken and humble before the Lord. But be haughty, be self-reliant, and you'll be crushed. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah and his two sons were righteous men in a sea of idolaters. His life and the other faithful followers were a sign against the faithlessness in Judah. Now Ahaz had sold his soul for political favors. He had bowed to the Assyrian gods. And so he says, When they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? I mean, this is how far Ahaz sunk. He he had turned himself completely over to the occult. Here is Jerusalem's darkest hour. They were seeking after mediums and sorcerers, powers other than God. Rather than trust the Lord, they were seeking, you uh, you know, after witches and so forth. And it grieved Isaiah. Why reach out to the dead when you serve a living God? Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Notice where he runs. He says, hey, don't seek the mediums and the sorcerers. No, to the law, to the testimony. That's where we should go. And this should be our strategy whenever we face tough and impossible circumstances. Let's turn to the word of God to God's law, to God's testimony. And if a counselor tries to steer you in any other direction than God's word, then rest assured, as he says here, there is no light 
in them. If they don't turn you to God's word, they're not speaking for God. He says, they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Those who refuse to trust in the Lord, you know, they'll, they'll, they, they will turn on everyone else. They'll curse their king, he says. They'll look for someone else to blame rather than rely on the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now notice this. Zebulun and Naphtali were always two of the lesser tribes. In fact, it was even more noticeable in Isaiah's day. He says, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice Isaiah here speaks of the way of the sea, or or what they call today the Via Maris. It was a trade route that ran along the Mediterranean up the coast, and then it crossed through the Galilee. Notice he calls this area, you know, along the, the way of the sea, the Via Maris, he calls it the Galilee of the Gentiles. Even as far back as Isaiah's day, there was a large uh, community of Gentiles that lived in the Galilee. This only grew in the centuries that came afterwards. A large Gentile population lived around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, by the first century, the Galilee was the home of Greek culture in Israel. In fact, ten Roman cities existed in the Galilee They dotted all across the the area there around the Sea of Galilee. They were called the Decapolis, ten cities. This explains Nathanael's reaction to Philip when he was invited to come and meet Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Nathanael scoffed. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why did he say that? It was because Nazareth was the heart of the Galilee and Galilee was associated with the Gentiles. All the invading armies entered Israel from the north. Before Ephraim and Judah, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first tribes to get trampled by these invading armies. And so, once again, another disadvantage. Yet, according to Isaiah, these two tribes are going to be compensated. Isaiah tells us in verse 2, For the people who walked in darkness... These tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The Galilee, Jerusalem's doormat, you might say, is given a special blessing. They will get the privilege of seeing a great light. Did you know that Jesus made his home base, the home base of his ministry, the Galilee? It was his home base of his earthly ministry. He did many, many, many of his miracles among the Gentiles of the Galilee. In fact, Capernaum, the city's Bethsaida, where he did most of his miracles. We call it the Gospel Triangle. That area there on the Sea of Galilee was part of the tribe of Naphtali. And so here, uh, Naphtali will see a great light. He's compensating these two northern tribes. Verse 3 You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The you here he's referring to is probably Emmanuel. He says, For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Emmanuel had broken a serious chokehold on the city of Jerusalem. Emmanuel had harvested joy for God's people. He says, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Spoils of Emmanuel's victory. And again, here we find Emmanuel, the virgin-born babe of chapter 7, the conqueror of chapter 8. Now in chapter 9, we have the fullest description of him yet. We're told, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus was fully human. He was a newborn child, but he was also fully divine. He was God's only son. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Imagine God coming to earth as a frail, vulnerable, helpless child. It's been said, the incarnation adds courage to the virtues of the Creator. When God joined the ranks of humanity, He entered through the lowest door. He wanted to understand our predicament. He wanted to have pity on our plight. And then we're told, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Isn't that interesting? Before Jesus slept in an earthly manger, he sat on a heavenly throne. Jesus is used to being in charge. Jesus is the king of heaven. Governor of all the earth is not too much for him to shoulder. He's not afraid of the hard choices and the constant crises you have to deal with. You know, there are those who teach that the church will usher in God's kingdom. They envision the church as a body with great political muscle. And so the goal of the church is to take over human governments and institutions. Our mission is political. But this is not what Isaiah tells us. The government's not going to be on our shoulders. The government is going to rest on Jesus' shoulders. He's the one who's going to come and right the wrongs and wipe out the wicked and establish His government on the earth. And His name will be called Wonderful. That's a good name for Jesus. He's the spice of life, isn't He? He's wonderful. He's a counselor. Got a problem? Need some wisdom? Got somebody you can go to. His name is Jesus. He's mighty God. That means miracles are His forte. He's everlasting Father. He and His Father are one. And He is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace to the earth, and He also brings peace to our hearts. And then we're told, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Now notice this, Jesus will sit on the throne of David. That means He'll sit on a Jewish throne. He brings in peace and justice. As eternal king, he establishes an everlasting kingdom. There are those who claim that God is through with Israel. That the promises that he made to the Jews have now been transferred and inherited by the church. Not so. Jesus is a Jewish king and his throne will be a Jewish throne. 
And as hard as Gentiles might fight against such a kingdom, Isaiah closes out verse 7 with a note of triumph. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. You know, when Assyria first attacked Israel, he replaced King Pekah with a puppet king, Hoshea. But Israel was too stubborn to admit defeat. And they rebelled. They tried to rebuild and refortify their city. They even solicited the help of the Egyptians against the Assyrians. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. The Assyrians Assyrians conquered Syria before Israel and they conquered the Philistines after Israel. And they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. In other words, God is going to judge his people, just as he said. He's going to judge Israel. And they can't run from the Lord. And and let me add, neither can you. Try to escape his judgment. Try to run from the Lord. And it's vain. Our best hope is to run to him and repent. A pilot once radioed the tower, pilot to tower, pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from land, 600 feet high, and running out of fuel. Please instruct. Over. The tower radioed back. Tower to pilot. Repeat after me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But when you're running out of options, it's best to run to God. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Both the honorable and the heretic will die in this one battle, in one day. Notice a false prophet is considered the worst of the worst. He's the tail. A teacher who lies and deceives is despicable in the eyes of God. He says, For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Always beware. You know, it's been said, never follow a leader until you know where the leader, who the leader is following. That's some good advice. All too often we end up the blind leading the blind. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and she shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. And he shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. That's not good. 
You'll bite off a chunk of your hand, try to eat it, but you won't be satisfied. When the Assyrians laid siege to Samaria, the siege lasted for three long years. And here's what the Assyrians did. They cut off the supply lines all around Samaria so that nobody in, nobody out. No food could come in. They literally wanted the city of Samaria to starve itself to death. That's what they ended up doing. And so the people on the inside, they resorted to cannibalism. They snatched on their right hand and they devoured on their left hand and yet they were still hungry. And I couldn't resist. This is kind of a heavy Bible study and so I thought I'd tell you four cannibal jokes. Here's the first one. Did you hear about the cannibal who ate something that disagreed with him? It was his mother-in-law. Here's the second one. What did the cannibal get when he was late for dinner? The cold shoulder. Here's the third one. Did you hear about the cannibal who ordered the pizza with everybody on it? Want that pizza with everybody on it. And here's the fourth one. Why was the cannibal expelled from school? For buttering up his teacher. That'll get you every time. Well, (laughs) hey, I just had to throw that out there. I I need to leave you with something that'll, that'll get you back next week. Hey, well, cannibalism was no laughing matter during the siege of Samaria. He goes on, he says, Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. The northern tribes would turn on each other. Then in chapter 10, God finishes his judgment of Israel. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. Those people are greedy. People are robbing the father, robbing the poor. You know, it's been said the one commonality between Democrats and Republicans. It's our money. Isaiah says, woe to those who write unrighteous laws, who try to deny justice and to try to rob the needy. Verse 3, what will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. For all this, here's the refrain, keeps coming back up. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Yes, God is angry at Israel. Yes, He has brought judgment upon her. But His mercies are still available. His hand is still stretched out. If they'll repent, if they'll come back to Him. Now, if you'll notice, if you've got a Bible with the topical headings, the next section begins the judgment of Assyria. And so here's what happens. God uses Assyria to judge Israel and Syria. But does that exclude them from judgment? Absolutely not. 
they will be judged as well. And that's where we'll pick it up next week.